0: Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is Season 10, Episode 9, and we are so excited for you to join us.
1: Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a
0: damn fine cup of coffee. (laughs) Nice.
1: (laughs) Today, we'll be discussing the 1992 surrealist horror drama, Twin Peaks, fire walk with me a prequel to the tv show twin peaks created by david lynch and mark frost the film was written by david lynch and robert angles and directed by david lynch the film stars cheryl lee moira kelly phoebe augustine kyle mclaughlin and ray wise
0: we are not shy about spoilers so if you haven't seen this film we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it Specific trigger warnings for the film and this episode can be found in the show notes. Like mentioned earlier, this is a prequel film to the TV show. It's absolutely possible to watch this film before watching the show, or you could even skip the show altogether if you wanted. This movie does stand on its own. Um, But if you do decide to watch the show, there will be plot elements in the movie and in this episode that will be spoiled, obviously. Uh, Okay, so are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Oh, and I'm using a new mic today that's clipped to my shirt, like I'm in like a community play. <laughs> <laughs> um, my current podcast setup is all wonky because I switched rooms and all this crazy stuff, so nothing's really set up, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, if I sound better, worse, or different, either way, it's because I have a new mic, and who knows, maybe I'll keep it if it sounds better. <laughs> okay. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the brief plot summary?
1: Yes. A teen sex worker named Teresa Banks is mysteriously murdered in the unfriendly town of Deer Meadow, Washington. The FBI hit a roadblock in the case, and it remains unsolved. A year later, we are introduced to homecoming queen Laura Palmer, who lives in the seemingly pleasant neighboring town of Twin Peaks. On the outside, Laura appears to be a happy and successful girl with a healthy home life, but as we soon learn, Laura's American dream is actually a horrifying nightmare, and in it, an unspeakable evil is slowly killing her. Ooh!
0: Thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay, let's get into the production of this film. Uh, Today, Abby's actually going to read all of the production... (laughs) Woohoo! <laughs> Woohoo! So go right ahead, Abby. All right.
1: Okay, so as mentioned previously, Fire Walk with Me is a prequel to the popular mystery serial drama Twin Peaks, which premiered on ABC on April 8th, 1990. The first season was legitimately life changing to its viewers, to the ABC network, and to television itself. According to an article written by Mike Mariani in 2016 for the Atlantic, it would be tough to look at the roster of television shows any given uh, it would be tough to look at the roster of television shows any given season without finding several that owe a creative debt to Twin Peaks, stating that. Lynch's manipulation of the uncanny, his surreal non sequiturs, his black humor, and his trademark ominous tracking shots can be felt in a variety of contemporary hit shows. Now, if you're a latecomer to Twin Peaks, you might watch the show and say, seen it, and roll your (laughs) eyes. (laughs) But the concept of this show in the 90s was truly like nothing anyone had seen. According to Ann T. Donahue, Twin Peaks started by asking us a simple question. Who killed Laura Palmer? <laughs> Which, surprisingly, it turned out to be groundbreaking. That's because when Palmer's body was discovered in the series pilot episode in April 1990, the beautiful dead girl trope was totally new. Sure, Perry Mason, Murder, She Wrote, and Columbo revolved around the deaths of characters, some of them young women, and who they were, and how they died, but each of those series subscribed to the standard 60-minute capsule formula. Victims were never more than a means of showcasing the protagonist's competence, and we never saw them again after the mystery was solved. Laura, however, haunted us, but only because we spent time with her story. So yeah, if you're a fan of uh, like Pretty Little Liars, Veronica Mars, The Killing, and Riverdale, then you have Twin Peaks to thank. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about the dead girl trope later in the episode. For its first season, Twin Peaks received 14 nominations at the 42nd Primetime Emmy Awards, including for Outstanding Drama Series, Lead Actor, Lead Actress, Supporting Actress, Directing, and Writing. There were Saturday Night Live and Sesame Street skits about the show. <laughs> Sesame Street. Wow. I love yep. it. <laughs> Um, And the pilot episode would go on to make it to a ton of top 10 lists for best television episodes of all time. And when I say everyone
0: watched this first season, I truly mean it. Oh, my grandmother, yeah, told me that uh, recently that she used to love Twin Peaks and she watched it whenever it was on, like... She was like, because I told her, I was like, oh, the next episode's about Firewalk With Me, the Twin Peaks movie. And she was like, oh, I used to love that show. Oh, like, my God. Oh, really?
1: <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So the second season, which premiered in 1991, oh boy, it did not do as well. <laughs> in fact, the decline in ratings was almost Flatlined compared to the first season, and there are many reasons for this. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the show, with the resolution of Twin Peaks' main character, Laura Palmer's murder, in the middle of the second season, which I gotta add was because ABC wanted it solved, David Lynch and Mark Frost never wanted that. They were forced to. <laughs> And Mm -hmm. with subsequent storylines becoming more obscure and drawn out, public interest began to wane. The discontent, coupled with ABC changing its time slot on a number of occasions due to wanting to show footage of the Gulf War, (laughs) led to a huge drop in the show's ratings after being one of the most watched television programs in the United States in 1990. Uh, we're probably going to end up spoiling most of the show in this episode, but I can't help it. It came out 30 years ago. I'm sorry if you haven't watched it sooner, but I'll just say for now that season two ends on a massive cliffhanger. So the fact that the show was canceled made diehard peakies who were still watching
0: the show go completely nuts. Yep. (laughs) I remember when I watched it, when it used to be on Netflix, I watched it, I think, in 2010 or 2011 was when I started it. And um, I I was sitting in my tiny, tiny room in New York City, in a a (laughs) a tiny, tiny apartment, in a tiny, tiny room, and I was watching it on my computer, and it ended, and I was like, all right, next episode. And I was like, uh, what? (laughs) it, It ends like... I mean, it's, the ending is one of the most saddest things I've ever seen because it's like, oh my God, it, it's, I don't know how to explain it without spoiling it, but it ends in a way that you, if you are, if you love the show, you're devastated. Oh. It's devastating. Yeah.
1: Oh my God. The worst. Yep. However... <laughs> <laughs> David Lynch wanted to continue and tried to find funding to possibly conclude the series as a film trilogy. According to the book Lynch on Lynch, Lynch wanted to make a Twin Peaks film because, as he claimed in an interview, I couldn't get myself to leave the world of Twin Peaks. I was in love with the character of Laura Palmer and her contradictions, radiant on the surface but dying inside. I wanted to see her live, move, and talk. I was in love with that world, and I hadn't finished with it. But making the movie wasn't just to hold on to it. It seemed that there was more stuff that could be done. But, according to Julie Muncy... Instead of continuing the creepy, off-kilter vibe of Twin Peaks or attempting to answer its many mysteries, detractors said Lynch jettisoned the show's goofy charm in favor of a tale of domestic horror. But that tonal shift is essential. In fact, it saves the Twin Peaks universe from itself, which we'll get into later. So the first film of this doomed Twin Peaks film trilogy is about the last seven days of Laura Palmer's life because, spoiler alert, she dies at the end. Yep. (laughs) According to Kate Coxell, no longer is Laura Palmer the dead girl wrapped in plastic, her spirit only living on through the nostalgic stories people tell of her. Through Fire Walk With Me, we gain a vital insight into the graphic and grisly realities that the original series only alluded to. We see Laura's relationships and mental state rapidly deteriorate, slipping deeper into her delirious state of denial and paranoia as she uncovers the truth about the evil spirit that torments her day-to-day. You would think that the audience this was catered to would love to see the show's ghostly heroine alive... (laughs) But you'd
0: be wrong. <laughs> it's like that. It's like that vine. Did you do the dishes? I thought you would do them. <laughs> you were wrong. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> I thought you would like this movie. <laughs> you are <You're> wrong.
1: wrong. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, Coxel goes on to say Firewalk with Me was a notorious box office lop Mm. with fans of the show despising the film for abandoning the final cliffhanger ending of season two and instead returning to follow cheryl lee's laura palmer throughout the last week of her life right before her inevitable demise lynch stood by the prequel even when it was met with booze at cans is it can can yeah okay (laughs) i always say canis (laughs) yeah it's okay (laughs) (laughs) A lot of Peekies were upset that some of their favorite series regulars were not present in the film, or at least that they weren't in it enough. According to the Wikipedia page, Kyle MacLachlan did not want to reprise his role of special agent Dale Cooper to avoid typecasting. MacLachlan's reluctance was also caused by a decline of quality in the second season of the show. As a compromise, McLaughlin demanded a smaller role, only appearing for five days of shooting. Lynch and co-writer Robert Angles rewrote the screenplay so that Teresa Banks' murder was investigated by agent Chester Desmond and not by Cooper, as originally planned. And the film was made without Twin Peaks series regulars Laura Flynn Boyle, who played Laura's BFF Donna, Sherilyn Fenn, who played series favorite Audrey, and Richard Boehmer, who played Audrey's father, Ben Horn. At the time, these abs- absences were attributed to scheduling conflicts, but in a 1995 interview, Fenn said that her real reason was that she was extremely disappointed in the way the second season got off track. <laughs> So yeah, Yeah. you could probably get away with Audrey and Ben not being in the film, sure, but Donna? No way. So she had to be recast, and actor Moira Kelly came in to play her.
0: Which I, no offense to Laura Flynn Boyle, but I kind of really like Moira, Moira Kelly in this role. I think she does a good job, and I think she has the essence of Donna as well. So I don't feel like it's that distracting that it's a different actor, Mm-hmm. but oh uh, whatever <laughs> what are you gonna do <laughs> i know
1: Ugh. according to box office mojo on a budget of 10 million the film only made 4.2 million at the box office in north america it did way better in the uk but
0: we couldn't find exact numbers so according no to I, it, I heard it did really well in japan too but i couldn't i couldn't Excuse me. I couldn't find, like, exact numbers of stuff, but... Isn't that so
1: weird how that happens with some films? You just, like, can't find the box office info, and you're like, what? Then how do you all know it did so well? I know!
0: (laughs) I guess from, like, maybe reviews or something. I don't know. I'm not sure, but... I
1: guess. I mean, show me the numbers. maybe I just didn't
0: look hard enough.
1: (laughs) No! (laughs) That that could have
0: been it, too. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: No. Um... (laughs) So according to Katie Coxell, Fire Walk With Me is hailed as a cult classic despite its huge losses in the 90s. Fire Walk With Me is a retrospective milestone in Lynch's on-screen exploration of the Twin Peaks universe, marking a significant shift towards the dark and unexplainable. And according to Robin McConnell, Lynch is punishing viewers for their curiosity. (laughs) You want to know who killed Laura Palmer, he asks. You want to know how she died? Brace yourself. (laughs) The result is a dreamlike narrative, lacking exposition or traditional scene transitions and resting squarely on the shoulders of Cheryl Lee, who gives a tremendous performance that makes us experience every ounce of pain and confusion Laura feels. And according to Garrett Castleberry, I would suggest that Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me remains one of the most emotionally devastating tales of American Gothic horror. A surrealist neo noir that refuses to let up on audiences until the final rapturous curtain call.
0: Yep. exactly that yep (laughs) okay so let's discuss this film Uh, let's start with the dead blonde girl and other tropes that have been subverted in this film so I got a few books here I read so much holy cats (laughs) Uh, I'm only quoting one two three four books but I, I think I read like seven about this movie oh my god i know i was very busy this month (laughs) okay so according to alice bolin in their book dead girls essays on surviving an american obsession all dead girl shows begin with the discovery of the murdered body of a young woman The lead characters of the series are attempting to solve the often impossibly complicated mystery of who killed her. As such, the dead girl is not a character in the show, but rather the memory of her is. Bulling goes on to say, In the dead Girl show, the girl body is both a wellspring of and a target for sexual wickedness. Clearly, dead girls help us work out our complicated feelings about the privileged status of white women in our culture. The paradox of the perfect victim, effacing the deaths of leagues of non-white or poor or ugly or disabled or immigrant or drug-addicted or gay or trans victims, (laughs) encapsulated the combination of worshipful, covetedness and violent rage that drives the dead girl show the white girl becomes the highest sacrifice the virgin martyr particularly to that most unholy idol of narrative so obviously like the dead girl trope is white yeah (laughs) very white concept uh and you know I, i guess twin peaks is probably the reason for that because laura palmer is white and blonde but it definitely, like, made a big impact.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. According to friend of the show, Elizabeth Irwin from Horror Homeroom...
0: Hi, Elizabeth! Hi,
1: Elizabeth! <laughs> if there has been one criticism that has plagued the Frost-Lynch saga, it is that Twin Peaks almost single-handedly ushered in the dead teen girl as spectacle trope that now plagues network and premium television at an almost incomprehensible rate. But does the show truly deserve that criticism? In terms of narrative, I'd argue no. Irwin goes on to say, I recognize that my belief that Twin Peaks is not a legitimate example of female corpse exploitation is not a popular one. Um, many a think piece has been written on the show's role of fetishizing Laura Palmer's body. Yet these writers often consider the issue as a singular moment instead of part of an overarching narrative.
0: Yeah, and I'd agree because in Fire Walk With Me, Laura isn't just the dead blonde girl that becomes the catalyst for other stories. Like, she avoids that trope in the film. And she's essentially our final girl, which we'll talk about in a minute. But, yeah, Mm. according to Jude Sadie Doyle in their book, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Quote, there have been blonde girls and naked girls and dead girls, but no girls have combined those qualities quite as memorably as Laura Palmer. Fire Walk With Me, what with its sordid focus on high school sex and serial killing, resembled an entirely different genre, the slasher movie. Fire Walk With Me could be the most rarefied teen horror film ever made, Entertainment Weekly noted in their review, It's like A Nightmare on Elm Street, directed by Michelangelo Antonioni. (laughs) (laughs) Wow! (laughs) And they're not wrong. The movie was primarily a long, slow exploration of Laura's last days. Laura's Laura's brutal murder had allowed her to serve as the central plot device of Twin Peaks. Her personality was only revealed post-mortem, like an endless scarf pulled out of a magician's sleeve... The sweet, universally beloved homecoming queen who was also cheating on her boyfriend and also a coke addict and (laughs) also a sex worker, but also had ties to organized crime, etc., (laughs) Fire Walk With Me tried to take all those contradictory shards of characterization and make Laura a real person, the heroine of her own story. The problem was that the end of the story was a foregone conclusion. Anyone who had actually watched the series knew the identity of Laura's killer and could predict how the movie ended. Laura is beaten to death in an abandoned train car by her father, Leland Palmer, who is possessed by the demon Bob, and has been raping Laura since the age of 12. Bob's ultimate goal is to break Laura's will through repeated rapes so that he can possess her too. He wants to kill me, or he wants to be me, or he'll kill me, Laura explains. Viewers knew from the beginning how that fight would end. Laura was waging her soul on a battle she was bound to lose. In place of the original series' mystery, there was just the awful clammy feeling of watching a sexually traumatized teenager march toward death. Fire Walk With Me borrows liberally from the vocabulary of slashers, but it's like a shred of a movie blown up to ten times its original size until one insignificant detail fills the entire frame. We don't get to know the slashers' other victims. Leland has already killed his other known victim, which is Teresa Banks, when the movie begins. And we don't get a final girl. Renat Pulaski is, like, the only girl to survive Bob. Bob's rampage, so, but she does so accidentally uh leland assumes she's dead after beating her into a coma all we get is one disposable girl the blonde who does coke and takes her top off in the first scene and does everything else that dooms a horror movie character to certain and immediate death but where most movies would kill that girl and move on fire walk with me doesn't allow us to take her our eyes off of her We stare at the slutty dead blonde girl for hours, long enough to like her, long enough to care. That's when we finally see what we paid for, what we've watched without blinking in all those other movies. Her death as she sobs alone and frightened in a dark room. It hurts in a way all those other dead girls never have. Fire Walk With Me forces us to stare at Laura until the stereotypes have dissolved, and all we can see is a child in unbearable pain, which is what the dead blondes have always been. It's what we all are, or were, us disposable girls. Unquote. Uh. you. A lot of people say Laura is the final girl, uh, but, but she subverts that expectation by dying at the end. Yeah. Um... And uh, I think that that's important because, um, well, according to Ashley Naftal, quote, Laura Palmer is a rarity, a final girl who doesn't survive to the end. While she dies in the train car, Lynch still gives her a moment of much needed grace at the end when her angel comes back to her. It hadn't abandoned her after all. It's just left the painting so that it could meet her on the other side, unquote. And we're going to talk more about Angels at the end of this episode.
1: Uh, I think this is important, especially since the film was released in 1992. Remember, this is before Scream. So final girls were almost always gender neutral in looks and in name, possibly asexual or at least versions. So they never had sex and they never comfortably did drugs. In the eyes of the audience, they were smart, pretty, pure, and good. The audience never wanted them to die solely based on this traditional final girl trope. All the other girls, the audience is rooting for them to die. Donna, who has brown hair, speaks gently, is conservative and straight-laced, seems like she would be our final girl in a classic slasher. But it's not her. It's Laura. According to Lindsay Hallman from her book Devil's Advocates Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, Laura quickly demonstrates that she is no horror film stereotype. Laura loses herself in drugs and sex, but as a means to numb herself to a truth that she cannot yet fully face up to. She's our main character, she's our final girl, and she's not at all like how a final girl should be, and yet when she dies, we are devastated. None of us are rooting for her death. Um, instead, we're dreading it. This whole film is one big dread fest, in my opinion. <laughs> like, I text Gracie and I was like, oh man, I haven't felt this way since, like, watching Hereditary. Yeah. <laughs> it is, like, one of the most dreadful films I have ever seen. Sure. And David Lynch is so good at that. Yep. <laughs> We love her even for all her faults. We feel for her and all we want is for her to be free. That empathy we feel is so incredibly important. As Auntie Donahue says, there's only so many dead girls you can see before you stop caring. And that's an issue. First, because you'll never care about the story if you don't care about the victim. Second, because a dead young woman should always be shocking.
0: Yeah, and before we move on, I want to quickly add this last bit. Um, Lindsay Hallam also informs us on how Fire Walk With Me and Laura's character uh, deconstructs and destroys the seductive daughter trope as well. Uh, Lindsay Hallam says, Laura screams in agony and terror. Here we are confronted with the central truth that the television series could not quite face, but which the film, through the employment of the horror genre conventions, finally reveals. This scene of horrific, incestuous rape illustrates another trope busted by the incest narrative in Twin Peaks and Fire Walk With Me, that of the seductive daughter. As Randy Davenport writes... A temptress who corrupts men by forcing them to be sexual with their children, the seductive daughter is a well-established part of literary and religious tradition. Davenport goes on to cite examples of the seductive daughter in literature, such as Lot's Daughters in the Bible and Nobokov's Lolita, Blech. As well as in pornographic magazines and even in the psychiatric studies, in these texts, it is Daughter who is placed as the initiator of incest and a corrupting influence on the father. Thankfully, this destructive trope has been challenged by the growing number of studies and testimonies that have emerged since the 1980s, which oppose the notion that a child can ever be complicit in such abuse for Davenport, Twin Peaks and by extension Fire Walk with Me also contests the narrative of the seductive daughter, demanding that its audience understand not just the sexual violence occurs, not just that sexual violence occurs, but that our culture tolerates a range of practices that serve to authorize violence against women. Just as the town itself is culpable in its silence, the viewer also is implicated. In Fire Walk With Me, in particular, we watch as Laura, through her actions and behavior, cry for help. And those cries are ignored. We see the damaging effects of her abuse and the trauma that she has sustained, unquote. Mm. So, okay. Uh, Let's get into our next topic. It's a little bit more lighthearted. We live in a dream. Oz and Wonderland references in Fire Walk With Me and Twin Peaks, I guess. Hmm. So David Lynch loves the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz. There's even a new documentary about it called Lynch Oz that came out just this year. Uh, And this Uh, As of this recording, uh, it's not available to stream. I don't even think it's in, like, regular theaters. I think it's only playing in New York City right now. Um, I don't think it has a real distributor yet, so I'm sorry you can't watch it. (laughs) At least not right now. (laughs) Um, But I'll talk a little bit about it here. So um, Eden, I think their last name is Rooklier. Mm -hmm. Uh, says, quote, the motif of a girl traveling to a strange world full of both magic and horror is one that Lynch emulates in almost every one of his films, unquote. So according to Steven Silver, uh, a lot of his work, especially Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive, is about vivid dreams, with the dream world, in some cases, a better place for the dreamer than the real one, unquote. Uh, Mulholland Drive is another Lynch film that I would really like to discuss. Um, I actually had to choose between that film and this one, because I Mm. knew I wanted to talk about either one of those. I chose Fire Walk With Me because it is (laughs) underappreciated, even though I know most people have seen Mulholland Drive. I was like, whatever, I'm going to talk about Fire Walk With Me, but someday (laughs) we'll talk about Mulholland Drive, um. So uh, I'm not going to go too deep into the comparisons of like Lynch and Oz because that's it's it's more prominent in Mulholland Drive than it is in this film. Um, but I will say that Silver goes on to say, quote, The Wizard of Oz had the man behind the curtain. Right. And Lynch's films and shows constantly have curtains in them, usually with women singing in front of them. Uh, And also Twin Peaks had characters, both named Judy and Garland, with Judy representing a figure of great mystery. And Silver continues, quote, there's also an exploration of something that's been said often about Lynch and the way his projects tend to present images of iconic Americana. So there's apple pie and small towns and diners and homecoming queens and the Hollywood Dream Factory. And Lynch exposes the hidden dark side beneath it. It successfully ties that to Judy Garland's tragic real life. So, as you all might remember, David Bowie's character,
1: Philip Jeffries, mysteriously appears in the FBI headquarters after being missing for an X amount of time. He's wearing bright red shoes, much like Dorothy's ruby slippers, which help her travel back home to Kansas from Oz. Jeffries says... We're not going to talk about Judy, and then goes on to say how we all live inside a dream and how Agent Dale Cooper might not be who he says he is or even thinks he is. And then Jeffries just disappears, quite literally, from the movie, much like (laughs) how the Wicked Witch just does in a puff of smoke. Oh, and at the end of the film, a a monkey, a flying monkey, whispers (laughs) very faintly, Judy. <laughs> but, yeah. But who or what is Judy? Well, according to Eden Roe Judy was meant to be a character in Firewalk With Me, but when the script ran long, certain parts had to be taken out. And thus, poor Judy ended up on the cutting room floor. Mostly. She's mentioned but never seen in the film and never discussed at length. So you'd think that maybe if the character of Judy was cut, then any mention of her would be cut as well but obviously not so (laughs) judy must mean something else in the context of this film
0: right so looking back at judy garland's real life laura could be a representation of quote-unquote judy or quote-unquote judy could be a code name for all the (laughs) quote-unquote judy's out there, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Laura appears to be a happy girl who is the homecoming queen and who has lots of friends and boyfriends for that matter, but in reality, she's extremely unhappy and essentially dying. And, um, <clears throat> like I said before, like I kind of want to go into more detail about Judy Garland's real life when we eventually talk about Mulholland Drive, but for now, I'll Quote Reau who says, Judy Garland's dark, tragic life full of turmoil and a sense of hopelessness is such a jarring juxtaposition to the roles she was most famous for. Happy, Mm. bright young girls always singing and dancing and full of cheer. This telling vision of Hollywood struck a chord with Lynch and Judy has been a part of his films ever since. Unquote.
1: Writer John Thorne has a theory, and they think that since David Lynch still wanted to keep this Judy character in the script, he attached her essence to a character that already existed, Laura Palmer. Lynch reintroduces Judy to the film after Laura Palmer has been killed. He deliberately places a close-up shot of a monkey uttering the word Judy just before he cuts to another close-up of the dead Laura. This simple edit obviously establishes a connection between the name and character. Judy is said, Laura is shown. Thorne continues, saying names and identities have always been fluid concepts in Lynch's work. Any study of Lost Highway or Mulholland Drive shows this to be the case. Perhaps Judy functions as a secret name for Laura, one that empowers her or someone else. David Lynch's lyrics to the song Floating from Julie Cruz's 1990 album, Floating into the Night, contains the intriguing lines... When told your secret name, I burst in flame and burn. This line echoes Laura's comments to Donna about falling in space. For a long time, you wouldn't feel anything. Then you would burst into fire. Forever. Are secret names words of power? Do they tap into an energy that is unfathomable in reality? Lynch's investigation into the slippery nature of names and identity hints at these provocative themes.
0: Yeah, and in an essay entitled Judging Judy from the Twin Peaks fan site 25 years later, quote, that David Lynch has an affinity for The Wizard of Oz is no big surprise, and the allusions to the world of Oz are found peppered throughout Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, and the third season of Twin Peaks, which is called The Return. Rather than making direct references and recreating the same characters as those in Oz, Lynch, per Lynch, creates creates these illusions in a way that we sense and feel rather than ones we can point out with our finger, unquote. And I think, I think, though, the biggest difference between Laura and, let's say, Judy Garland's character of Dorothy is that Dorothy wants to go home. Mm-hmm. But home to Laura is the most horrific place of all. Mm-hmm. She will literally die before she returns home. Home yeah. is hell. Right. And um, now there are also Alice in Wonderland references in this film. According to Celia Quintet for their essay. Quinnette for their essay. Down the Snowshoe Rabbit Hole. Quote. Characters in David Lynch movies often lose themselves in a dreamlike world not too far off from our own reality. Part comical, part dark, twisted, or off kilter, and part hysteria, Lynch forces viewers to make sense of what may seem on the surface to be oversaturated nonsense. Quinnett goes on to talk about how Oz connects to some of Lynch's stories, but then adds, Lynch's corruption of children's allegory does not stop with The Wizard of Oz. While thinking about Lynch's obsession with Dorothy and trying to plug Twin Peaks into that paradigm, I was excited to realize Twin Peaks is completely borrowing from the world and characters of Alice in Wonderland, unquote. Mm -hmm. Quinnett continues and says, In Through the Looking Glass, after Alice passes through the mirror into the dream world, she discovers a book with a nonsensical poem inside that is seemingly written in gibberish until she realizes that books are just written backwards on the opposite side of the mirror. She holds it up to a looking glass mirror, and the words all go the right way again. Sound familiar? Unquote. Mm, Yes. Yeah, everyone talks backwards in The Black Lodge. (laughs) Yep. So, yeah. Uh, Lindsay Hallam also talks about the Alice Connection in her book, Uh, and there is, like, uh, there's so in the movie there's a strange picture that Laura hangs on her wall a picture of an open door a portal mm-hmm. helen reads quote one is reminded of the beginning of lewis carroll's through the looking glass and what alice found there as alice looks at a mirror which like laura's picture hangs on a wall in her home Frank Belug also notes that Twin Peaks is indebted in multiple ways to Carol's books. Alice becomes curious as to what the world is like on the other side of the mirror. She believes it does not contain the same world as that which it reflects, but leads to another world. A world which is later a world which she later discovers does not conform to the rules and laws of her base reality. Alice goes to the chimney near the mirror. It is written that she hardly knows how she got there and crosses into the mirror as the glass begins to melt away like a bright silvery mist. Boundary between two worlds is permeable. Easily breached through dreams or through an intense look where what is hidden in plain sight but has always been subconsciously felt and perceived comes into view. So Laura goes through this portal right she goes through this image of this this is probably one of the creepiest scenes too in the film where she goes into this picture and she it's a pov shot and it's her walking through this these rooms and she sees the old woman and her grandson and they're kind of beckoning her to keep going through these rooms and oh it is like a nightmare it's pretty scary yeah Helen goes on to say for both cheryl lee And Frank Silva, Cheryl Lee plays Laura Palmer and Frank Silva plays Bob. It was the placement of the mirror within the scene, which seemed to create a specific feeling leading to the unleashing of a previously hidden or subconscious part of the self, what was in the mirror was perhaps another self, yet also connected to themselves in their character. So Hallam is talking about that scene at the end of the film where Bob slash Leland puts that mirror in front of Laura while she's tied up. Uh, Hallam goes on to say, Mirrors and the undying theme of duality are common symbols, both within Lynch's work and within horror cinema, horror cinema more broadly. The mirror becomes an object of portent, carrying with it a strong, effective charge, as suggested earlier by Weinstock in this book. The sight of a mirror within a horror film will immediately create feelings of dread and apprehension about what we will see in its reflection. Often a mirror will reflect a secret side of the self as shown in the television series of Twin Peaks, when, in an episode directed by David Lynch, Leland is revealed as Laura's killer as a shot of a mirror in, Palmer, in the Palmer's living room shows Bob as his reflection, mirrors and backward speech play an important role in other horror films like *The Shining*, another narrative about a murderous father, and mirrors unleash monsters in the movie in the 1992 movie *Candyman* and *Paranormal Activity 3* from 2011. Mirrors reflect dual selves in the movie Mirror Mirror from 1990, Black Swan from 2010, and become haunted objects like in Dead of Night from 1945, in Oculus from 2013, or Portals to Other Worlds in Orphe from 1950, and Mirrors from 2008. The swinging mirror on a cabinet or wardrobe is often used to create jump scares like in Repulsion from 1965, Phantasm from 1979, and What Lies Beneath from 2000, and countless other examples. The mirror has the power to create an instant visceral shock, as well as a means through which a creeping feeling of uncertainty is created as spaces between realities become fluid. Ooh. And I got to add this last part here from Celia Quinnett again, but Lewis Carroll was probably a fucking pervert. Um, <laughs> Quinnette <Yeah>. says, <laughs> says in their blog, Twin Peaks and Wonderland, quote, When Leland is taken to see Laura's body in season one, episode one, the pilot, he breaks down while calling her his little girl and my baby. But it only intensifies the gross factor when you think about the fact that Leland, possessed by Bob, has been raping Laura since the, a very young age. Related to that, or not related, something that I found, Quinette found, uh, found out was uh, while doing some research for this blog post was that Lewis Carroll has been debated as being a pervert. Among being a mathematician and a writer, he also took photos of children, some of them in the nude. Some argue that this should not be really looked at through the lens of our times and that societal rules were different in the 1800s and that it was for art and not for perversion. But I would say that the line between art and perversion is often blurred and abused by artists. Nevertheless, pervert or not, the possibility of him being a secret creep is relevant to the Leland character and could have influenced Lynch's approach to the way in which he corrupts the Alice in Wonderland stories. But... Who knows? Unquote. I think that's pretty fair. <laughs> I think that is very fair. Uh, yeah. That was something that I didn't pick up on. And when Quinette mentions that, I was like, oh, yeah, for yep. sure. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> because if you put Laura is Alice and her father is Lewis Carroll, yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about suspending reality and learning to feel while watching Fire Walk With Me. (laughs) According to Liam uh, Gaugan, Fire Walk With Me is an integral piece of the Twin Peaks mythology because the context it is given isn't based on the plot, but emotion. And Lindsay Mm -hmm. Hallam says there is a pointed emphasis on how this film is felt, in particular as it has always provoked strong reactions. For me, the film is profoundly emotional, being in turn terrifying, upsetting, shocking, mystifying, heartbreaking, and inspiring." Mm -hmm. Hallam goes on to say, given that not everything is resolved and explained within the diegesis of the film anyway, the abstractions that Lynch mentions instead become part of the larger experience of the film itself, a process where the spectator gets more from letting go, letting go and feeling their way through the images and sounds they are presented with, unquote. Sometimes I wonder if that's why uh, a lot of people don't particularly enjoy this film Or David Lynch films in general. Because there's no subtleties to the emotions presented and felt in this movie. Every heart is worn on its sleeve. And that makes people uncomfortable. Uh, Not only expressing their own deep and primal emotions, but maybe even more so witnessing others' primal feelings. And I think most of us either freeze up, or cry, or laugh, or whisper, what the fuck? <laughs> because we don't know how to respond yeah. to other people's primal emotions. Yeah. And I think any or all of these responses to Fire Walk Me are appropriate. You know, crying, laughing, whispering, what the fuck, freezing up. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Because like, it's just intense. So how is intense feeling and raw emotion achieved in this film? Well, I think most of us might first say the acting of course. And yeah, for sure. In the scene with the arm, Bob, uh, Mrs. Chalfont or Mrs. Tremont, whoever she appears to be, there's a lot of Twin Peaks lore there and her grandson, uh, the jumpy man and the electrician, um, that scene where they're all sitting in the room above the convenience store, uh, where it's like this like kitchen, this is weird, like kitchen. And there's all these like spirits are just hanging out in this room. And, There's, like, all this weird music, and there's this this guy that's jumping up and down, and there's this little kid slouching in the couch, and there's this guy just, like, turning on a TV and, like, hitting his leg, and you're like, what is going on? (laughs) And, like, it's, this is a good example of the audience being like, I don't know what the fuck is going on, but I know I am feeling blank. Like, I know I'm feeling this. Yeah. And whether that's... (laughs) yep. Yeah, and according to Lindsay Hallam, the way these characters behave is off-kilter. Both their speech and movement are performed backwards, and then they play forwards, creating a strange effect that places them outside of our normal reality taken altogether. The scene produces an intensely unsettling feeling, unquote. Yes. I think the actors and direction, of course, have a lot to do with how the audience is feeling when they watch this film. Um, But especially Cheryl Lee, who plays Laura, in an interview with Courtney Stallings for the book Laura's Ghost, Women Speak About Twin Peaks, uh, Cheryl Lee says, quote, in order to enter the Red Room or any time I work with David Lynch, I have to take a logical part of my brain and surrender it and set it aside so that I can walk into this world of his. It's an incredible experience creatively, unquote. (laughs) So when talking about Laura's death scene, Cheryl Lee said that everyone on the set like made her feel safe, including David Lynch and the other actors, uh, especially the ones who played Leland and Bob. And Lee says it was all safely done, but physically I will never forget it. I had a doctor once say to me, the only part of you that knows you are acting is your mind. And I would also say that the same thing happens to audience members while watching this movie. You know what you are seeing is acting but your body is still feeling it. And by the end, you are so drained and you have to recover from watching this movie, I think. According to Hallam, as Lee's physical body enacts the scene, we too also see and experience the film and this scene in particular as a physical event. That the audience knows that this was coming, that Laura was always going to die, does not drain the film of its tension though but actually amplifies it we now come to this point having been with Laura for the last week of her life having come to know her beyond the remembrances of others and felt her suffering with her so to witness the horrific end of her life creates a strong but a strong gut response and a powerful emotional impact (sighs) so (laughs) Lindsay Hallam also goes on to say uh, she talks about, like, emotions and the raw emotions in this film, and she particularly talks about the scene where Laura leaves her boyfriend, James, uh, the guy with the motorcycle. <laughs> uh, so, Helen says, Laura constantly shifts between wanting to take comfort in James's love for her and wanting to drive him away. Shara Lee is quite astonishing in the scene as she goes through several different emotions within just a few minutes. She shifts from slapping James to kissing him, becomes scared that Bobby will find them, screams at something in the dark, tells James that Bobby killed someone, then denies it. She is completely coming apart. All of her feelings and fears and her many, many secrets can no longer be contained. She can no longer pretend to be the Laura that everyone thinks she is. She pronounces, you don't even know me. There are things about me. Even Donna doesn't know me. Laura pauses, following her declaration by telling James that your Laura disappeared. It's just me now. After the revelation of the night before, Laura knows that the knowledge she has acquired has fundamentally changed her and that she can only stop the pain by becoming completely numb. She cannot afford to admit any feelings for James. And of course, then she screams, I love you, James. And she kisses him and she runs away. (laughs) And at that (laughs) moment of her declaration of love, composer Angelo Badalamenti's Laura Palmer's theme, which was frequently used in the series, builds to its climax. As Claire Nina Norelli explains, Laura Palmer's theme is actually the combination of two musical cues, the foreboding dark introduction and the romantic love theme from Twin Peaks. The love theme cue was used to similar effect in the pilot episode as Leland and Sarah Palmer learn about their daughter Laura's death. Likewise, in Fire Walk With Me, the love theme cue swells up just at the point that Laura screams that she loves James, that it also is at the moment that their love comes to an end. They will never see each other again. The ecstatic climax of the music stirs the emotions, providing, as Norelli argues, a counterpoint that actually serves to heighten the feelings of sadness and grief, Laura realizes that her fate does not lie with James and his love, but somewhere much darker and she must face that fate alone. Ugh. Yeah, it's sad. And like a lot of people are like, this is like very dramatic, but that's the point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think not a lot of people are used to seeing that. And that's why David Lynch films can be so jarring to some people. Right. It's just in your face, Mm -hmm. and they're not subtle. At all. No. No. (laughs) Yes. So, according to Philippa Snow, what makes Lee memorable is the way her choices via the tone and delivery are so rarely obvious, sometimes tipping over into faintly surreal or illogical. Laura's highs are the artificial and nearly manic highs of a soap opera, and her lows are the guttural animal lows of real-life grief and trauma. Often, we see her experience wild mood swings over the course of a few seconds. She laughs during moments of great peril, and when she is threatened, she has an unusual tendency to bare her teeth, as if she herself is the black dog that runs at night.
0: Yeah, and uh, what else? I think for me, a big part of the emotional pull comes from the sound editing and the music, which are both incredible in this film. Hallam says about the same scene, quote, the sound plays a major role in the creation of dread, As the slow distorted speech is accompanied by a similarly distorted sound, which also appears reversed. We are being taken beyond our normal experience of reality, shifted through time and space in a nonlinear fashion where the rules that govern ordinary surface reality no longer work and the effect is deeply upsetting. This, of course, all happens in the red room or the waiting room as well, where the arm also resides. Another great example is the Pink Room, the place where Laura and Donna go for some (laughs) debauchery. According to Lindsay Hallam, sound is essential in creating mood, elevation, Elevating tension and creating fear. And Lynch has always been a master in this respect. In Fire Walk With Me, there are several scenes which emphasize sound and musical performance in expressing Laura's sadness while also highlighting her attempts to drown out her feelings and deny her abusers true identity. Julie Cruz, as she sings Questions in a World of Blue in the strong in the song lyrics, asks, Why did you go? Why did you turn away from me? How can a heart that's filled with love start to cry? When did the day with all its light turn into night? As Laura listens to the song, which is slow and melancholy, she is moved to tears. The lyrics seem to speak directly to her, capturing her feelings of abandonment, of being left alone and devoured by the darkness. This connection of feeling between protagonist and Spectre is highlighted in the scene as Laura cries during Cruz's performance. Michael Vaz pinpoints this scene as one of several examples in Lynch's filmography, where a character viewing a theatrical performance becomes a means through which Lynch's highlight... Lynch highlights cinema's capacity to reveal intangible emotional affective truths through immediate visceral experience of the moment. So... Yeah, uh, the reason why that scene is, like, so loud and there is, like, so much happening is because we're meant to feel how the characters are feeling in that room. Mm. I mean, to the point where there's subtitles, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hallam goes on to say a live band plays throbbing, repetitive music, which is so loud it drowns out the dialogue requiring subtitles for Lynch. The sound is of equal importance to image. Uh, the sensory overload evokes in the spectator the same feeling of intoxication felt by both Laura and Donna. And like in reality, in a club, you can't hear anything, but you can hear something if the person is yelling, and like, as Lynch says, that was the idea. So the music was cranked to the max, and people were really talking loud enough to be heard. So it it worked. So the music is at 10, and the dialogue is at 2. But you don't have to worry about it as an audience member, because you can read the subtitles. So like, you can understand what's happening. But you're still so like, engrossed in this world. Yes. By being in this like loud, loud room. Yes. Uh, The subtitle dialogue calls to mind the scenes in the red room, which also present unintelligible dialogue that requires subtitles. So here we have these two places, the pink room, which is where the debauchery happens. (laughs) And uh, the music is loud and needed subtitles. And then you have the quiet red room, Uh, but everyone speaks nonsensical and they speak backwards, so you have to have subtitles for that, too. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's great. Um, Also, the color scheme of the pink room is close to the red room, but it is slightly diluted. So it kind of makes you feel like, okay, I'm still in the real world, but it's just bordering on, like, uh, this fantasy world. Yeah. Sort of. So it's pretty great. Yes. So... The desire to drown out sounds is also portrayed in the scene where uh, the one armed man confronts Laura and her father while they are in the car. Uh, Hallam says Laura is covering her ears to illustrate her unwillingness to deal with the situation. This reading of the scene is confirmed by sound designer Douglas Murray, who states the sound represents the turmoil of emotions felt by Leland and Laura as their mutual denial of the abuse starts to break down. Marie says she's putting her hand over her ears. So it's kind of mirroring, mirroring, there's the mirror again, what she is going through. And that's why Leland is honking the horn. Leland realizes what is happening and he is just looking insane. And Laura is going through such a horrific time in her life, which we have wanted to illustrate. As Murray makes clear, the sound in the scene is crucial to conveying the emotions of the characters. The sound functions as a device to unsettle the viewer, to plunge them into the chaos and confusion felt by Laura at this moment, unquote. So yeah, that's why this scene is just so much because you're supposed to feel how they are feeling in that moment. And it's this movie does that through the acting and through the music and through the sound. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to add that I once heard someone say that they didn't like this movie because there was just too much screaming in it. (laughs) (laughs) And okay, it's a horror movie. So I don't know what to tell you about that. So there's going to be screaming. Yeah. I feel like, randy from scream yelling there's a reason for this you know there's a reason why (laughs) screams drown out other sounds and can even drown out our thoughts much like how the pink room scene is like that but i think this goes back to that feeling of those of a feeling those primal emotions while watching this film uh Elizabeth Irwin, right, has uh, a great blog called When the Women Screams and she talks about how fire walk with me is great in the sense, um, in this particular quote, Irwin talks about Laura's screams when she comes to the shocking realization that Bob and her father are the same person. Uh, Irwin says, quote, because Laura has always attributed the abuse she endures to Bob, she is shocked to realize that Bob and her father are not separate entities. Her scream is a complicated mix of betrayal that a person who should be someone protecting her is the one violating her, shock that what she has always assumed to be true is a lie, and pronounced grief that her dream of a return to the happy nuclear family life she covets is outside of her grasp. Laura's scream is also tinged with disgust, both as a reaction to her father's perversions and to her perception that she might somehow be to blame for his actions, the latter of which is an all too common feeling experienced by sexual abuse survivors, unquote. And I feel like with true crime podcasts and TV shows, as well as fictional shows like Law & Order, SVU, And, of course, the Dead Girl shows, like we mentioned earlier, we've all become desensitized to this kind of absolute horror. And the only way for us to, like, quote-unquote, get it is to hear these piercing screams and be subjected to these confusing images and and sounds. Mm -hmm. They put us into these characters' brains. And they are finally, we are finally feeling that very palpable fear. And... Kate Hagen says, quote, Laura's scream reverberates not only through the train car in which she is killed, but through all of time, unquote. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to domestic horror, uh, abuse and trauma. So according to James Patey, quote, Lynch successfully manages to turn the sanctity of the family home into the most dangerous place on Earth, unquote. Now, we've talked a lot about domestic horror, especially when we covered John Carpenter's Halloween, so go back and listen to that episode for, like, the basic info, but I'd argue that Fire Walk With Me is a better example of this subgenre of horror because um, it's possibly because the threat feels so fucking real. Yeah. And, I mean, it feels that way because it truly is. Like, uh, according to Courtney Stallings, in their book, Laura's Ghost, they give, like, some very upsetting statistics about that so uh so stalling says according to the rape abuse and incest national network also known as rain uh the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization every eight minutes child protective services substantiates or finds evidence for a claim of child sexual abuse of all victims under the age of 18 Two out of three are ages 12 to 17, and 82% of victims under the age of 18 are female. The effects of child sexual abuse can be long lasting and affect the victim's mental and physical health. Perpetrators of child sexual abuse are often related to the victim, and 80% of perpetrators are a parent, according to Rain. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because Laura says that this abuse started when she was 12, and she dies when she's 17. So it happens during that time um, where most children are abused by their parents. Um, Yeah. So that is absolutely terrifying. Um, And Lindsay Hallam talks about how Fire Walk With Me fits into the subgenre in her book. And says, quote, the home as a site of horror is a common genre trope with the breakdown of the family unit at the center of many horror films like Rosemary's Baby, Halloween, The Shining, Amityville Horror, The Stepfather, and Insidious. In many of these, the father becomes possessed by a malevolent force, taking the figure of patriarchal authority to a violent extreme. Although much has been written about maternal monsters and horror, Often written from a psychoanalytical perspective, the monstrous father can also be perceived as an expression of repressed desires and instincts. Leland, under the guise of Bob, transgresses and fund- the most fundamental of taboos, committing both incest and filicide, unleashing his sexual and violent instincts upon his own child. Rather than the son's desire for the mother, Twin Peaks tells the story of the father's rape of the daughter, family violence rather than family romance. Lynch places the ultimate horror not in some fantastical or outwardly gothic ominous setting, but in a middle-class home at the divided heart of the nuclear family unit. According to Janet Walker for their book Trauma Cinema, documenting incest and the Holocaust, Walter describes Trauma Cinema by saying... Dealing with traumatic events in a non-realist mode characterized by disturbance and fragmentation of the film's narrative and stylistic regimens. Trauma films in in contradistinction to the classical regimen of disremember by drawing on innovative strategies for representing reality obliquely, by looking to mental processes for inspiration, and by incorporating self-reflexive devices to call attention to... Uh, The Scaffolding for Audiovisual Historiography. As Walker outlines here, films dealing with trauma often employ stylistic techniques to represent the warping of reality that trauma can cause. Rather than making the trauma quote-unquote look real, instead, trauma cinema takes you inside the experience of trauma. An experience that often causes a fracturing of identity, lapses in memory, and shifts into fantasy, unquote. So it would make sense for a film that talks about, like, your dad raping you Mm -hmm. to to be, like, totally, like, wild and fantastical. Because the very idea of that happening, as common as it is, is something that a lot of us don't want to admit or don't feel like is actually real. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of abuse victims have said that they put themselves... like, have out-of-body experiences while the abuse is happening Mm -hmm. in order to survive it. So abuse victims almost have to live in this fantastical dream world in order to survive.
1: Yes. Another interesting thing about that, too, is in some people where they experience, um, like, mental health disorders that run in their family, Mm -hmm. um which i definitely could posit is happening between laura and her father i think that bob is kind of a manifestation of all of these negative feelings and right i would definitely pose that there is schizophrenia that runs through their family and mm-hmm. when you experience trauma like this it usually when you're that young can trigger those symptoms and you know you see a lot of young people with schizophrenia diagnosis or like schizoaffective disorder and stuff like that that is brought on by these traumatic experiences so it's really interesting to watch this film and watch Laura kind of like go into that downward spiral of like having these Super vivid dreams and hallucinations and stuff like that, because that mm-hmm. that happens to people like that's a very real thing. So when you watch sure. this film and you're like, this is so outlandish and this is so weird and like out there, it really is not for a lot of people. This is their reality. So,
0: yeah, that's that's a great point. Um <clears throat> Going back to Courtney Stalin's book, the author interviews many female identifying fans of Twin Peaks, and I was stunned to see how many of them were also abused as children mm-hmm. and how Firewalk With Me was very healing for them to watch.
1: Yeah. One of the interviewees, Mary Z- uh, Zraniski, suggests that Laura is a hero for survivors, even though she doesn't survive herself, saying, the thing that is powerful about Laura is she actually has the power to stop the pattern, the pattern of abuse that is happening. Finally, Laura is the one who puts her foot down and says, no, this is not okay, and it ends here. I am not going to pass this on to anyone else. Stalling says, unlike her father, Laura never allows Bob in and breaks the cycle of abuse, although this is through her death. Granted, loss of life is not ideal. We want you all here because you're worthy of life and we need you here. But I think it's also important to not shame people who don't survive, who are murdered by their abusers. And again, we said this before, but that's why stay sexy and don't get murdered (laughs) is Mm. an incredibly problematic slogan, even though it wasn't meant to be. Sometimes women and girls are murdered. It's not their fault. And no one deserves it. Laura and the real women like her are important and still heroes.
0: Yeah. Uh, That is (laughs) exactly right. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Throw in shade. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And listen, Laura might... Laura might die, but she dies a hero because Bob is never to, is never able to become her. Mm-hmm. So, Laura never herself becomes an abuser. Right. So this is something that's not presented in the film, but in the TV show, uh, her dad Leland says that when he was a boy, he used to see Bob. He lived in the house next to his grandfather's lake house, and so he saw him every summer. Ah. Uh. So it's safe to say that Bob, you know, the essence of Bob, uh, abused Leland as a child. Mm -hmm. And I want to be clear that, yes, in the context of the supernatural elements presented in this film, Bob is a demon spirit thing of some sort who possesses the father. But metaphorically, Bob represents sexual abuse and death. And not just that, but sexual abuse and death to children. Yeah. Which is one of the greatest evils. And Cheryl Lee, who plays Laura, says to Courtney Stallings, quote, one of the things that struck me when I saw Fire Walk With Me Again so many years later is no wonder it got such bad press. It forces us to deal with something. Nobody was talking about incest. There are still they are still not talking about those men who do that to young women. The film is very, very confronting. Yeah. Unquote.
1: Yep. And according to Elise Souter, in interviews conducted by Chris Rodley for the 2005 book Lynch on Lynch, Lynch expressed this himself, saying the movie was about the loneliness, shame, guilt, confusion, and devastation of the victim of incest. It also dealt with the torment of the father, the war within him. A girl dies in order to free herself of the unspeakable horrors around her, both tangible and supernatural, and becomes the fleshed-out superhero of her own story in the process, and people vehemently do not want it.
0: Yeah, and Stallings talks a bit about what it was like confronting abuse in the 1990s in their book, Uh, and Stallings says, quote... Five months after Fire Walk With Me premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1992, Senate O'Connor stood on stage at Studio 8H in NBC's headquarters at 30 Rockefeller Plaza and in front of a live studio audience held up a photo of Pope John Paul II while singing a cappella, an a cappella altered version of Bob Marley's War. When she got to the word evil in the lyrics, she ripped apart the Pope's image, much to the horror of the audience and executive producer Lauren Michaels. O'Connor, still clutching the torn fragments of the Pope's face, told the audience to fight the enemy before finally tossing the remnants to the ground. O'Connor was calling attention to the childhood abuse that was taking place in the Catholic Church, but no one listened. Much of Sinead O'Connor's pain comes from her own childhood abuse. She recounted how her mother violently beat her and verbally abused her when she was growing up. What happened to me is a direct result of what happened to my mother and what happened to her in her house and in school, O'Connor has said. A cycle of familial pain exists in abusive homes, and O'Connor wanted to put a stop to it. And uh, Stallings goes on to say, for me, Sinead O'Connor is forever connected to Fire Walk With Me. Both were misunderstood in 1992. Both confronted sexual abuse directly. All these years later, after Spotlight and others shed light on systematic childhood abuse, as well as the resurgence of the Me Too movement, people are beginning to understand the significance of speaking out against sexual abuse. They are beginning to listen. In 1992, it was not only revolutionary to do so, so, but speaking out about about the topic could get you booed it could get you ostracized it could kill your career unquote Mm -hmm. but like shirley said this is not just something that has happened it's still happening happening and maybe yeah we do talk about it more but is anyone really doing anything about it well the people who have power, are absolutely not doing anything. In fact, I think it's safe to say that by abolishing Roe v. Wade, our Supreme Court is unintentionally encouraging incest. Yeah. Hey, why not? You can get away with it now. <laughs> right. <sighs> but yeah, I, I don't think I've stressed enough how wild it is that the dad is the villain in this early 90s movie. Mm-hmm. You gotta really remember what the early 90s was like. The airwaves were filled with family sitcoms and the dad is the patriarchal goofball who might have too much on his plate and we laugh at his silly children and his wine-drunk wife and all these <laughs> other trials and whatever. <laughs> and if we're not watching these silly dads on prime t- primetime, we're watching 90s movies like The Silence of the Lambs, where the female character, our lead, is essentially looking for a father figure after she's lost her real one whether it's her boss or Hannibal Lecter. Clarice has a very weird patriarchal connection to these men. And I honestly didn't really realize that and how bad it was until I watched this great video by YouTuber Maggie Mayfish. And it's in the show notes and I suggest you all watch it. But yeah, it's like dads were like it's honored in these movies, even if they were a literal cannibal serial killer. Yep. You know, it's very weird how it was done. Yep. Um, And you could say to me, okay, well, Gracie, the stepfather movie from the 80s was about a patriarchal figure destroying the family and the women in the family are the victims. And I would say, okay, sure. But Terry O'Quinn wasn't the real dad. Mm-hmm. He was the uh, stepfather. Right. So the 90s dad, not a stepfather and not that you met a year ago and not a mentor at your job. The biological dad in this film is the abuser. He is the rapist and he is the murderer. And that is, that is like mind blowing for a 90s film. Uh, according to Victoria Large, there's a scene that finds Laura's father, an eventual killer, Leland Palmer, Palmer, grasping his daughter's hand in his and complaining about the dirt that supposedly lodged under one of her fingernails. Oh God! Which I... makes it creepy because that's part of his mo as he puts letters under girls' fingernails. Yes. Laura has already begun to suspect that her father is also somehow Bob, the man who has been sexually abusing her from a young age, and. audience is already certain uh which makes it hard to even find words for how gut-wrenching it is a few moments later when Leland roughly pinches Laura's cheek and at his wife's objection that Laura doesn't like that snaps how do you know what she likes it's a nasty moment made more so by the fact that Both of Laura's parents sit silently down to dinner shortly thereafter, waiting for Laura to wash her hands in an ugly parody of suburban domesticity, unquote. So, yeah, that scene is pretty insane for sure. And according to Maura McHugh, quote, with all of the extraordinary scenes of horror and weirdness and fire walk with me. This scene at the Palmer family dinner table is one of the most uncomfortable and difficult to watch because it is couched in the everyday power dynamics of an unstable household in which no one will speak the truth. There is no need for red curtains or demonic entities, Mm -hmm. unquote. Yep. And, um... I just want to talk about this real quick. There's so many things I wanted to talk about. I deleted so much from the script because I had so much to talk about, but I do want to add here that I think that's why the ceiling fan in their house is such a powerful visual as well. It's being operated by electricity, which the demons in the room above the convenience store mention, And, and it haunts the owner of the trailer park where Teresa Banks died. Um, but the ceiling fan is also used by Laura's father to drown out any noise when he rapes her. hmm So even the appliances in this house have turned against her. So just the very idea of living in a home, like, just the, just the little things in the house are not on her side. It's wild. Oh my God. Oh, so...
1: Laura has also been queer-coded by fans of the show, and you cannot tell me that another aspect to domestic horror is not being gay in a straight home and straight town. It is. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) According to Alexander O'Connor, there was something undeniably queer about Laura. Like so many residents of the town of Twin Peaks, there's the face, and then there's something behind the face. Laura has secrets, um, something anyone in the closet can relate to, but she's also extreme, liminal. The things she experienced and the choices she made, such as they were, are ones that exist firmly outside of conventional morality. Though I had not and never would experience the particulars of Laura's life, I felt I experienced her isolation and transgression. My depression made me feel this keenly, intensely. She saw her secrets as an enveloping darkness. And so did I. When the discourse around gay rights still consisted of whether gays could have civil unions, marriage being far too lofty a goal, and if it was okay to fire someone just for being gay, I felt like my existence was transgressive. I felt on the outs, so to speak, in a major precarious way. O'Connor continues and says that in Fire Walk With Me, Laura was beset by evil forces which wanted to control her, possess her, and destroy her. And though the position seen by others in the world was one where she was destroyed, we see in Fire Walk With Me that she was not destroyed, but transubstantiated. (laughs) O'Connor then says, I would argue that anyone constricted, anyone who has a double life, a different person behind the face, could relate to her. And anyone who has ever been in the closet knows this circumstance and these feelings viscerally. We've talked about the gothic double in episodes from the past, how main characters in gothic stories are stalked by their doubles. Well, what's another name for domestic horror? Suburban gothic.
0: Yep. And it's canon that Laura is actually queer, since Mm -hmm. she explains how she sleeps with, I think, two or three different women in her diary, which the diary itself is a book that you can purchase. And the diary was written by David Lynch's daughter, Jennifer Lynch. Wow. Yeah. So Twin Peaks is a family affair. (laughs) Um, But like we mentioned earlier, Laura may not survive at the end of her horror of her movie, but she is a hero to many real women and so many real women truly needed her according to Kate Hagen quote Laura Palmer has become one of the ultimate faces of female suffering in the world and of the ceaselessness corrupting influence of men even when Sarah Palmer who is Laura's mother even when Sarah Palmer tries to destroy Laura's prom photo in the final moments of the return she cannot Laura Palmer's legacy is bigger than her family, bigger than the town of Twin Peaks and bigger than the show itself," unquote.
1: And according to Julie Muncy, when Lynch returned to Twin Peaks for the movie prequel, he did so to set Laura free. Firewalk with me overhauls the meme of Laura Palmer. <laughs> it gives her agency and purpose. It portrays her as a tragic hero fighting against an evil that she resists even as she's powerless to fully stop it. By retelling the foundational myth of Twin Peaks, Lynch's film subverts it and corrects it. Twin Peaks is no longer the story of a girl who died. It's the tragedy and triumph of a girl who fought her abuser to the death.
0: Yes, and that brings us to our final thought. Angels and Fire Walk With Me as a spiritual film. So according to Cheryl Lee Lauder... Who sh- very coincidentally shares the same name as Cheryl Lee, who plays Laura Palmer. <laughs> uh, Cheryl Lee Ladder is a Twin Peaks fan and a writer and an abuse survivor. And they say, quote, in 1992, 1993, I watched fire walk with me every night for a year. I needed to see something that filled me with hope. I needed to see angels. Every night before I went to sleep, I would think of Laura, of all the Lauras who wouldn't make it through till morning. I remember praying every night for God to give me life to, to give my life to another Laura, someone who deserved it more and would do it better. But every morning I woke up. And day by day, it got a little brighter in the world and a little easier to breathe, unquote. And I've seen some comments and reviews online that criticize like the cheesiness and deus ex machina of the angels in Firewalk With Me. But I think we really need to look at why angels play such an important role to Laura and also Ronette. They are both teenagers, no older than 17, and they are from white, middle-class families in America. So it is highly likely they have a deep personal connection to some denomination of Christianity. And growing up, my grandmothers always had paintings and pictures of angels in their homes. So if you're (laughs) a young kid in suburbia in the 80s and 90s, chances are you're going to be growing up seeing a lot of angel paintings. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So I think something as simple as a vintage angel is going to mean a lot to these little girls. Mm -hmm. So even if, like, the angels are very cheesy or, like, what is this? You know, like, very obvious. I think that's what it's supposed to be. Because if you're a little kid, if you're a young girl, and your only spirituality is going to church every Sunday, the image of angels is going to be very powerful for you if you're a young child. Yes, yes. So I think that it makes a lot of sense to have these angels in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other forms of Christian theology presented in Firewalk With Me as well. And according to a very random blog that I came across, Religion in Twin Peaks, quote, Some viewers believe Laura's sacrifice and death mirror, again, mirrors, mirror the gospel. While Laura does not exactly possess the qualities of Jesus, she certainly makes the entire town shake and mourn for her death, despite what people knew about her. An obvious similarity is Laura's sacrificial death in efforts to stop Bob's terror, thereby inhibiting him from making her commit crimes as her father did. One website argues that Fire Walk With Me acts as the Gospels. The first two seasons are the Old Testament and the Return and is the New Testament. The town of Twin Peaks is at a standstill after her death, and the first season does a wonderful job at showing how Laura had influence or impact on everyone from drug lords to the Canadian on the Canadian border to reclusive, anxious, middle-aged men who she brought meals on wheels to each week. <laughs> Fire Walk With Me attempts to reverse what Season 1 instills in regards to Laura's persona. Like Jesus, Laura was misunderstood in her motives during her life, and she had few people fully supporting her and was often betrayed by those she held dearest. The Old Testament would be related. Would be related to the first two seasons in the discovery of Laura's demise, and the Gospels are represented by Fire Walk with Me, as we are shown the actual events leading up to her death. And of course, like I said, the New Testament would correlate with the Return, as it shows the expanded worldly reach of her death. Unquote. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Laura could totally be a Jesus type character. <laughs> and in the Return, which, like I said, is the third and perhaps final season of Twin Peaks, which came out in 2017. It's revealed that Bob is perhaps a product of modern man, something born from the atomic bomb, metaphorically, while Laura is his counter, the goodness in the world. And according to Liam uh, Gaughan, quote, If Laura was was a representative of the spirit of goodness that was stolen away by evil forces beyond her control, then the film shows just how strong her spirit is as she endures unimaginable suffering, unquote. Again, a very clear Christian Jesus, Jesus message. (laughs) Going back to how David Lynch wants to do Laura justice, I think it's safe to say that by bringing in common childlike Christianity tropes that would appeal to a young Christian girl, he is showing here that her death has come too soon, which makes us, the audience, remember that she is a literal child. And as Lynch scholar Martha Nokimson said, quote, Lynch sought to show the cosmic ramifications of Laura Palmer's death. And then Courtney Stalling Stallings says after that, Twin Peaks is a spiritual story. And I'm going to end this episode with another quote by Lindsay Hallam. Quote, The final scene is a supremely emotional one, providing Laura with the release, relief, and comfort and love that she did not get in life. The scene presents a revelation of Laura's newfound balance of the opened and bound, the ultimate sign of human freedom and dignity. Rather than an ending, this also suggests a beginning. Indeed, the presence of Agent Dale Cooper provides some answers to future events in the series finale, implying that his good self was trapped in the lodge, partly in order for him to be there for Laura's transition as a guiding force and Another, but some as a guiding force in another, but somewhat less traditional guardian angel. The angel that floats above her provides further comfort with Laura's nods at. With Laura's nods, a recognition that she now realizes that the angels never left her. They did not appear to her earlier, as they knew that she already held the strength and power to reach this point of redemption on her own. Laura can now move on further to a higher state with them, ready to see all the dimensions that exist beyond our own base of physical reality." I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I actually was not sure what you would think of this film, Abby. I was like, I don't know if Abby's going to love it or hate it.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, it, um, here's the thing. As someone who absolutely loves psychology and all things like psychological horror, this was one of the most accurate representations, I think, of Mm. mental illness And, like, cyclical trauma and abuse and how, for people who like true crime, they, a common thing is to talk about, like, the less dead or, like, Mm. people who live on the fringes who, you know, they, a lot of people don't know what their life is like and what their lifestyles are like. And this is, even though it's, like, a weird, like, dreamlike movie... Mm -hmm. It's actually so accurate because for anyone Mm. who has been in like a little dive bar where like you know bad things are happening, Mm -hmm. like this, that's it. David Lynch totally captured that. And Gracie, I know that you know, like the area that we grew up in, it kind of reminds me of Twin Peaks in that like- for sure. The people there- um, like, there's a lot of nice people there in the area where we live and stuff like that, but it's that, like, really run-down hometown, like, you know that there are things going on behind the scenes, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you're like, mm, something is definitely fishy about this situation. Like, yep, this film really, really captured that for me, and... Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, like, everything that I was talking about earlier, like, how trauma can trigger things like schizophrenia or delusions and and that kind of thing. Like, it was beautifully done. So, A-plus for David Lynch on this one. I think he did
0: a great oh, job. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad yes. you enjoyed it. I, I really do love this film, and it is... It does not get enough recognition, I think, because it's connected to a TV show, and not everyone's seen the TV show, and they're like, oh, do I have to watch the TV show first? And a lot of listeners did ask me through social media, wait, do I have to watch the show before I have to watch the movie? And I was like, yeah, you can do this. And finally, I was just like, do whatever you want. Just watch it. Just watch this movie, please. Everyone watch this movie. It's so good. I
1: haven't seen the whole series yet. And, um, I mean, the movie made a lot of sense to me, so... For anyone who hasn't seen the show, I would still highly recommend it.
0: Yeah. And the things that don't make sense probably don't make sense in the show either. So, like, <laughs> yeah. I don't feel like you're really missing too much. But anyway. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you all for listening. And thank you all for being patient while we dealt with our own trauma <laughs> and loss this week. Yes. Um, that was really great. Everyone was super understanding. That's awesome. We have the best listeners. That's true. Yeah. Um, if you love what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on the show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and our time and head on over to patreon.com slash good And if Patreon isn't your deal, that's fine. You can also show your support. Checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t shirts, and more. A link to our merch shop is on our social media. It's also available in the show notes of this episode, including our Patreon link. So check it out.
1: Yes. And we know times are <laughs> really motherfucking tough right now. <laughs> so <laughs> a free way to help the show is following us on social media Twitter at Good Morning Nan and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show, please.
0: Yes, and listen, Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. So check out this episode's show notes and see how you can help. We love you all to death. Stay safe and have a good morning. Bye!